like to offer you uh, at the close of this church year uh, for your own meditation as we think about the absolutely crucial necessity of God's people being people of gratitude. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if the distinguishing center of the gospel is God's grace, then the distinguishing center of the Christian life should be gratitude to God for that grace. And so we're going to look at three texts, um, not just because they relate to one another, but I'm actually going to try to make three points this morning, one from each of these texts. And we're going to start with Psalm 50. And uh, although we're focusing on verses 14 and 15 and 23, I want to start to have a little more context with verse 7. So our first lesson is from the Psalter. And it is Psalm 50, beginning with verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of, all, of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you've done and I've been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Our second lesson is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter one. And while we're really going to be focusing on one little verse that is very easy to overlook uh, as he begins to give a description of the declension of people who've turned away from God and sought to worship the creation and the creature rather than the creator. Uh, nonetheless, this one little verse is so telling and important that we not miss. 
But just to remind you of the context, why in the world does Paul start talking about the wrath of God? We come, if we begin with verse 16 of Romans 1, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we're ready to hear the gospel, this good news. But he immediately says, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Focusing, of course, on that 21st verse, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him with devastating result. And then finally, from Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 17, beginning with verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And if you look at the footnote, you will see that the literal translation is, your faith has saved you. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. All around this country, people of all kinds, all different uh, ethnicities and places within the economic system. People even in the poorest areas sat this day, for the most part, around tables laden with good things. And if you're like me, you wanted that table laden at least this day with turkey and dressing and cranberry sauce and whipped potatoes and sweet potatoes and all the rest. And we celebrate. Why would we do that in a world so filled with sorrow and pain, with war, terrorism, poverty, 
disease. In 1620, 150 passengers and crew, sick and disconsolate, dropped their anchor off Cape Cod, having endured an awful six weeks crossing the Atlantic. And Governor William Bradford wrote of the place where they were about to go that it was a desolate and horrible place filled with desperately dangerous animals and people. That's my version of what he said. But uh, this, this place, after this huge ordeal, did not look inviting. It wasn't even where they'd originally intended to land. And wild creatures and wild men inhabited it. And over the next year, over half of them died of disease and exposure. And at the end of that, what most of us would consider unbelievably tragic and horrible year, they gathered together and invited 91 of those wild men who'd now become friends and helpers to a feast in order to thank God for his grace in bringing them through that year with less than half their number. But they had survived. I don't know if if we in the West today can conceive being those kinds of people. We who have more than any people who have ever lived in the history of humanity, even people of relatively poor means in our country have at their disposal things that the greatest, wealthiest potentates of human history could not conceive having. Our ease of transportation, our relative safety, our access to health care, the food that is available for nearly all of us in such excess that a lot of us by my age have to take Lipitor. Uh, we, nonetheless, Don't we tend to look only at the painful parts of our lives and say, why does God permit suffering? Rather than asking, why have I been so blessed as to live at such a moment in history, in such a place as this, and to enjoy such freedom and such relative affluence? We have, even those of us going through the hardest things, lives that are incredibly easy. And yet thanks does not seem to be our great strength. In fact, it's interesting to me, I walk, sometimes I don't now so much, but when I served on some college and seminary boards, I would walk across campuses and see young people pass me, especially young men, which just so saddened me and grieved me, with their eyes downcast, looking lonely and sad. And then I'd go to speak for mission groups in the hardest places of the world, parts of Asia and Africa, with people who had nothing 
and the children were running and laughing and playing and the people were beaming in the midst of the hardest things in life. And those who were children of God would testify to their joy in the midst of it all. I said last week that one of the great tragedies of our day is that in the places, the parts of the world where the church is free to worship and witness, the church is declining rapidly. And in the places where the church is suffering and pressed, it is growing like crazy. And the numbers of Christians worldwide are still exploding. A third of the people in the world profess to be Christians. And yet, the joy that should always mark us, the joy that I think I saw here today that was so good to enter into with you, should always mark us because gratitude is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Why, why did Paul, and I'm going to go back to the psalm in a minute, why did Paul, having announced the good news of the gospel, immediately say the wrath of God is revealed from heaven? Because unless we know how lost we are, there's no joy in being found. If I'm standing out front in my yard and someone comes by and goes, I found you, I found you, I'm not going to share in the joy. I'm going to wonder what's wrong with them. But if I'm lost in the heart of the Smoky Mountains near my home in Tennessee and someone finds me, I am going to be overjoyed and going to want to hold their hand all the way back to the trail that I lost. It is knowing how desperately lost we are that is what makes the gospel so incredibly joyful. That's why in every season except Eastertide, we pray prayers of confession because we want to remember that from which we've been saved. So three, three texts for you to think about. The first is Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, the psalmist Asaph, this is not one of David's psalms, it's a psalm of Asaph, but he says, you are a people who are doing everything religiously that you have been told to do. You are offering all the sacrifices that Moses told you you should bring. You are offering up the prayers. You're going through all of the religious exercises. But God says to you, do you really think that that's what it's about? Do you think I need the blood of bulls and goats to drink? Do you think I need the flesh of these sheep if I were hungry? Would I tell you the earth and everything in it is mine? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on my name. And then he speaks of the deep salvation in the final verses of Psalm 50, the deep salvation that God will bring to those who offer him praise. Let me ask you this morning, are you someone perhaps who's who's come to church off and on or perhaps very faithfully for much of your life and you, you've seen the gospel change the lives of people that you know, perhaps people in your family. 
And you have wanted that same kind of transformation in your life. And yet, no matter how often you come to worship, no matter how much you serve, no matter how much you give, it just never seems to connect with the deepest places in your life. Perhaps the great thing that you need to hear is that what the Lord wants from you more than all the other sacrifices is to begin with a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That you begin your day by praising the Lord. Perhaps begin it as good religious Orthodox Jews begin it with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And Jesus adds to it another verse. Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. But then begin to praise him for making himself known to you. To say that in Christ I have known the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. I can call him Father, Abba, through Christ. Why does it matter? Why are the why is gratitude so crucial? I want to be careful in how I say this because it's, it's a path with, uh, if you've ever hiked in mountains on a ridge and, and the fog has settled in, you've realized that you've got to stay right on that ridge because you can go off on either side. And the truth about God and about our relationship to him is often like that. So I want to say this carefully. But we have seen within the church, not just since the Reformation, but starting with the church fathers, uh, the influence of Greek philosophy coming in, even with the great ones like Augustine and the others, and a desire to make the God of the Bible agree with philosophical concepts of God so that God is revealing himself to us in little pictures. He's pretending as though he has feelings. He's pretending as though he cares, but actually he's almost more like Aristotle's unmoved mover. He knows all things, so nothing really touches him. And I find stirring whenever I recall the great philosopher and mathematician, the inventor of calculus, one of the two inventors of calculus, uh, Blaise Pascal, who one night in prayer had this overwhelming experience of God's presence. And he recorded it and, and tore that sheet off and carried it with him for all of the rest of his life. And it said, midnight, fire, God's presence, not the God of the philosophers, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob actually feels things according to his own word. And should we go beyond his word? He loves his people. And when we do not return that love, he is like a jilted spouse. That's how the prophets describe him. God's heart is broken. You say, but he knows the future. You and I sometimes know the future. We know this child, we know. <laughs> Boy, we're in for it with this one. There's gonna be heartbreak. 
But it doesn't mean that when those heartbreaking moments come, we're like, oh, I saw it all, I knew it. Our hearts are broken, why? Because we love this child of ours. And God invites you in Christ into his family where he as a father loves you. And this whole Shakespeare put in the mouth of King Lear, how like a, how like a serpent's tooth is an ungrateful child. Brothers and sisters, if our hearts are not moved day by day with gratitude toward God, that breaks the relationship as surely as a relationship is broken with a child who always comes home to get the money and the car keys and then drive away without a word of thank you. We don't have to teach little babies how to ask for things. Before they can speak, they are making everybody jump at every screen. But we have to teach them over and over again to say thank you. And some people never get it. But God wants his children to get it. So the psalm first is a good place to go and look and just hear again, not the entire thing. I, I do love that finally the ESV corrected or, or gave us a better translation of um, verse nine, where it says, I will not accept a bull from your house. I could hardly read this all the years that I preached from the RSV which said, I will accept no bull from your house. <laughs> so, but he says this, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and here is God's promise. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And then that final verse, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. That's how crucial it is. In Romans 1 then, he's telling us, here's the gospel of grace. The reason that you need this is because humanity, all of whom know that there is a God and that at least he's a God of power, he's the creator, he's the one who made all this, but have turned our backs on him and worshiped and served the shadow that we cast on the ground instead of the light that is behind us. And he says, they did not give him thanks. And so he gave them over. And if you know this awful passage, it's a description of this country since I was a child. That transformation has taken place. First, he turns us over, he says to, and he uses sexual immorality because it's universal. Everybody who's alive struggles with it. And so he turns them over to sexual immorality. But if they don't repent, he then turns them over to sexual perversions. God again gives them over. And if they don't repent of that, he turns them over to the final stage verses 24, 26, and 28, to a depraved mind that not only does these things but approves of them. I may have 
shared this before, but when I was a child, I still remember reading in the Chicago Tribune that the greatest and most respected actress of that day, Ingrid Bergman, who'd made Casablanca and, you know, was the premier, had had to leave Hollywood. She could not get work because she'd had a child out of wedlock. Now, I hate that for her, I mean, but that Hollywood wasn't moral, but it had this sense that, ooh, we can't pretend as though we agree with that. Therefore, she had to go back to Sweden for a long time before she could get another job. We've come a long way. Now, I would hope that we would always show love and compassion and be willing to hire someone who's had a child out of wedlock, but the difference that I'm pointing out is that Hollywood went from a time of saying, oh, we have to acknowledge that there's right and wrong, to today, where all bets are off. Why? Because God has given us as a culture over to a depraved mind that approves of everything. And if we doubted that, just look at the response of Harvard and Yale and Stanford and the rest to Hamas raping women and beheading babies. That it wasn't their fault. They were forced to do it because they're oppressed. Now that's the culture we live in and we need to recognize it and push against it. First of all, by saying if ingratitude has that kind of devastating consequence, I will not sit around and bellyache to the Lord. Why have you let this happen? Why is my life like this? Why am I hurting? Why are their kids all healthy? And you know, I, I have friends and I, I declare, I read those brag letters at Christmas, you know, and I'm just like, they, they all live in Lake Wobegon, you know, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking and all the children are above average. My, my wife once said, should, should we, write a letter that's honest <laughs> and horrify all our friends. Should we get permission from our children to tell what a disaster everybody is? You know? If we focus on that and say, Lord, how could you let my life be like this? We're missing the opportunity for intimacy with him. One of the great things in a marriage is when you've got someone where in the hardest places you can come and say, nevertheless, we're in this together. I love you, and I love being loved by you. Thank you. God wants that with us. We are the bride of Christ. We're children of God. We're the bride of Christ. He wants that kind of joyful intimacy with you and me. And when we give ourselves in the hardest places to that, we begin to see God work and move and do things that are beyond what we might have dared ask or imagine. Finally, the great joy of gratitude. You know the story. Jesus heals 10 lepers and remember that lepers in the ancient world could not live with their families. Didn't matter if you were the king of Israel. Didn't matter if you were the wealthiest person. If you had leprosy, you were chased out 
And if you had to ever be someplace where you got near people who didn't have leprosy, you had to cover your mouth like this and cry out, unclean, unclean, so that people would run from you. It's a little like what Dr. Fauci asked of us during, I'm, I'm sorry, I just thought of that, didn't mean to say it. Please, no emails from doctors. Um, but, I mean, you had to make people run from you because you were unclean. It was a horrible thing. It was the end of your life. You couldn't do your work. You couldn't do anything. And yet 10 lepers, nine of them apparently Jewish because Jesus sends them to the priest in Jerusalem. One Samaritan, the hated half-breed. And as they go their way, they are healed. And nine of them got what they wanted cherished the gift and forgot the giver. And the Samaritan turned and went back to Jesus and fell before him and said, thank you. And Jesus said, where are the nine? Only the Samaritan has come back. And then he says, your faith has saved you. It was the gratitude that demonstrated the faith and so at the end, I would just say this. Really, the measure of whether or not we believe the gospel is our gratitude. If our hearts are perpetually filled with complaining and whining and ingratitude, if our focus is constantly on what we don't have, who we have never become, it really means that we don't believe the gospel at all. We may believe it the way that the demons do. The demons believe and tremble, said James, but no gratitude. So in this final Sunday of the church year, let's simply ask ourselves, is my heart moving more deeply into a place of gratitude? Or is my focus always on what I don't yet have, what I haven't yet experienced, As Steve Brown would say, you think about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that you have given us not just future salvation, but it is present. If we are in Christ, we are new creation. Your spirit is living in us. You've given us promises of a future above and beyond all that we could ask or imagine. And you want us now to be living in the light of all of that so that others seeing us walk through the hardest places of life, perhaps with tears and groans and yet with words of praise and gratitude to you who are making all things new. You who have promised at the end of the day to wipe away our tears. You who have promised to restore and heal and make new. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul.
Would you respond from the heart to whatever God would say to you this morning?